welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow at Cato. And I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. Well, it's uh, good to be back and good to be back for our 30th episode. Um, So from the liberal international order to poaching of endangered species, power problems has covered a lot of ground in the time that I've been out. Uh, But that's nothing compared to what's happened in the world of foreign policy. President Trump is now almost two years into his presidential term. He's made some pretty dramatic foreign policy changes um, and he's left some other things just completely untouched. So I thought maybe we'd take this opportunity to revisit some of the more dramatic twists and turns in US foreign policy that happened over the summer and debate what they might mean for the remaining part of Trump's presidential term. So we've got North Korea, we've got China, trade, we've got John Bolton's war on international institutions, not to mention Iran and a bunch of other issues that might come up as we go along. It's a lot of stuff to cover. So joining us today to help pick through all of this is our colleague John Glazer, Cato's Director of Foreign Policy Studies. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Let's start with everybody's favorite world leader love triangle, and that's Donald Trump, Kim Jong-un, and South Korea's Moon Jae-in. So poor Donald, he didn't win a Nobel Peace Prize. But he still apparently remains very optimistic about his relationship with Kim Jong-un, which he says is is great, and about these ongoing North Korea-South Korea summits and the prospect of denuclearization by North Korea, Um, despite the fact that the New York Times recently reported North Korea is still continuing to build nuclear weapons. There's even talk that Trump might set up another summit because he feels things aren't moving fast. So uh, is this all just smoke and mirrors? Can we call this a concrete change in U.S.-North Korean relations? I don't think you can call it concrete yet. I think it, I, I'm I'm holding out you know, hope as a good agnostic uh, that there might be things happening that I can't see that are actually important. But uh, you know, I think for me... When we had some of these conversations way back after the first summit, it didn't look like anything had changed. Um, there had been no new incentives provided to make North Korea move, you know, switch tracks. Uh, it looked like their program to, you know, get nuclear weapons has succeeded, and it's hard to imagine them giving them up for anything, um, unless it was really, really good. I have heard nothing from the Trump administration that suggests it sounds really, really good, and so my my prediction would remain the same if you made me say what I think is going to happen, I think the answer is nothing. And the part two of my answer there is that Trump, I think he does care about you know doing something big on North Korea in one sense. I think he smells that up or smelled the opportunity for a Nobel Prize or whatever it was. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think Trump is more about smoke uh, and theater than he is about getting things done. I think he'll claim success till the cows come home and be perfectly happy with that. So I think, you know, he'll have his guys push, but at the end of the day, he's not willing to get suckered. I think that's his biggest fear. And so if he has any concerns about that, I think he walks and just claims victory. So I think you're right that uh, what Trump is interested in here is primarily superficial. He likes the stagecraft better than the statecraft. Uh, and he doesn't quite know how to negotiate in a strategic way. The irony is that that might not all matter. Uh, what might be important here is the superficial reality that a president and Kim Jong-un have met face to face. It dials down tensions. It makes war less likely. And no matter how deluded the White House is about its progress, about the likelihood of real denuclearization, et cetera, um, the prospect of war 
is uh, far less now than it was prior to meeting. And so however bumbling this diplomatic process goes, for as long as it's sustained, I think uh, tensions are eased. Yeah, and uh, we are, in fact, more than six months into John Bolton's tenure as uh, National Security Advisor. Who would have thought six months in we would not, in fact, have a new war? I think we were all wrong on that one. Yeah, I, I whiffed on that one. Uh, talking is always better than fighting, John. You're absolutely right about that. But I, I was just reading a little earlier today, you know, Lindsey Graham worrying, man, if, if North Korea doesn't, you know, pony up something, it's this is, their, this is the last chance for peace. It's last chance for peace. And, I, you know, Lindsey Graham, whatever. But- um, on the other hand, I think there are some Bolton types in the administration who do want something tougher than nothing. And so I still am worried about something. There's some really interesting policy proposals floating around. Um, and the one that particularly seems to be popular uh, in South Korea is the idea that the US should trade an armistice or a peace agreement to end the Korean War, which never actually officially ended, and trade that in exchange for some sort of verified disarmament of one facility or you know something that the North Koreans could credibly commit to. Um, but it's really not clear how that's being received here in Washington. So as I can tell, uh, Washington is the only party uh, that opposes a peace declaration. Russia supports doing one. China supports doing one. South Korea supports doing one. North Korea supports doing one. And uh, the United States eventually starts to seem like an obstructionist uh, party to these negotiations if it keeps denying what others want to do. Um, my understanding also is that you know, they were going to the Trump administration was uh, considering a peace declaration, uh, but in exchange from North Korea, they wanted a concession that it open up all of its nuclear facilities to uh, inventory and inspection. Um, the South Koreans tried gently to push the Trump administration to uh, to demand something far less, uh, namely, um, the, you know, inspections on the Yongbyon uh, facility and destruction of those uh, those capabilities at that site. Um, and if that happens. Uh, and a peace declaration is declared, uh, I think, again, that'll be another step in the right direction to normalizing relations in Northeast Asia and having things uh, progress, however uh, ad hoc a fashion, but uh, progress nonetheless. Yeah, I think, though, that the reasons that Washington is not is the one not on board are worth talking about. And I think there there's some concern that this is a clever you know, wedge issue between South Korea and the U.S. that you get uh, an armistice signed, you get a truce, and then why is the U.S. on the peninsula anymore, man? Why don't you guys just go away? And then the rhetoric shifts gears to trying to, you know, what? and then I think the conservatives and the hawks here and the internationalists, the globalists are worried because if we don't have an official reason to be in South Korea, then we can't keep containing China, you know, secretly, not so secretly uh, with our forces in South Korea. And it's, okay, I get it, but come on, guys, let's, you know, if this you want to contain China, just contain China. Stop pretending it's about North Korea. This is actually a crucial point. I just had a conversation before the podcast with one of our colleagues, Eric Gomez, who just got back from a trip from South Korea. And what he said was uh, the officials that he was talking to and the people on, working on policy that he was talking to essentially are uh, sort of agnostic about the future. Uh, they think maybe a US alliance with a security guarantee and troops in the future will be useful to us, uh, but maybe it won't. Maybe a different arrangement is going to be more appropriate. Uh, they're also much more sanguine about the threat from China. They agree there's some troubling trends there. They obviously are concerned. They're a proximate major power, just a small sea to cross. You know, they're much closer than Japan is. So there's a concern there. But they also understand the benefits that Chinese 
uh, heft can bring to the region and, and, and that kind of thing. So yeah, most of the concern is for liberal internationalist, liberal hegemony types in the United States who demand that we have a far-flung military in every corner of the planet. And if a problem in Northeast Asia gets solved, what's our purpose? You know, there's a really sort of interesting point uh, that that raises, which is we've always seen people here in DC concerned about the idea that if we don't reassure allies enough um, that we have their backs, that then there will be, um, you know, the alliances will split, allies will go their own way, they won't be reassured, they'll be worried. But what we're seeing in the Trump administration is almost the polar opposite, right? It's that the Trump administration is a lot more hawkish than allies in South Korea, and we're seeing it in the Middle East and other places too. And so we're starting to see some of that alliance disengagement coming because the US is driving maximalist demands while the allies want to be a little more rational about it. And that's a really interesting development. Yeah, there's very little nuance in the Trump-Bolton-Pompeo uh, you know, scenario right now. Well, uh, let's shift and move on to uh, another topic, but one in which uh, John Bolton also features pretty majorly, um, and that's his war on uh, international institutions. This is not a new hobby for John Bolton. He did it during the Bush administration. He, he's tried to do it every time he's ever been in government. Um, and he's basically withdrawing the US quietly from a whole bunch of international institutions, um, threatened to sanction the International Criminal Court. We've withdrawn from UNESCO. We've withdrawn from the UN Human Rights Council, not to mention the JCPOA, NAFTA, the TPP that we'll talk about in a little bit when we talk about trade. Um, a lot of people are pretty worried about this. As a realist, I'm not so convinced international institutions are a big deal. Um, do you think it matters? So, I mean, I agree with you that power ultimately determines international politics and international institutions um, are not as big of a deal as they're often described. Uh, but I do see two potential problems with this kind of thing. One is kind of selfish. So it contributes to the perception that the United States is, quote, withdrawing from the world, which might be true with regard to international institutions that John Bolton has long hated, but it's not true with our security policies. Um, and so that creates, I think, a, a misperception. The second problem is that it could indeed add some friction to US priorities and preferences in terms of its foreign policy vis-a-vis uh, -vis these allies or adversaries in international institutions. It gives us perhaps less of a voice, perhaps less sway, at least in the realm of doing things cheap and easy with diplomacy as opposed to hard power, which is much more costly. Uh, so it, there are problems with it. It probably won't be determinative uh, in, in the sense that you say. Yeah. I mean, matters for what is the follow-up question, right? Matters for keeping the United States secure at night? No, of course not. Uh, but matters, as John said, for uh, ensuring that we have diplomatic options? Yes, absolutely. Um, you, know, you don't have to be a disciple of Michel Foucault to believe that uh, power uh, is also exerted through discourse. I think the idea that you know, we here in this building would like to see the U.S. behave more, more as a shining city on a hill and exert moral authority throughout the world than uh, military authority. Uh, and it's hard to do that when you withdraw from all of the values-based international institutions that many of which you set up in the first place to be the shining sort of institutional points on the hill. Um, you know, are they perfect? No. Are they always useful in getting exactly what you want when you want? Of course not. Um, but the idea that moving the furniture is going to be easier from outside the house than inside the house, totally ridiculous, especially when we talk about trade. 
100% when we talk about trade. And, you know, UNESCO, does that matter to anyone? I mean, not on the surface. But again, as John pointed out, if, if people see the United States retreating from global leadership and then the United States wants to do something globally and leadery later, it's hard when China's sitting in the chair. Yeah, this is ultimately about the collective perceptions of the world in some sense because membership in these organizations and constructive engagement with these organizations confers a sense of legitimacy, not only on the institutions but on the members that partake in them. Uh, and that can kind of grease the wheels towards some diplomatic uh, overtures and initiatives. I agree with you generally, Trevor, but if you're going to quote Foucault, you're going to need to go on Free Thoughts podcast instead. We don't do that kind of political <laughs> philosophy here. Um, but I, I do disagree on one point, which is that some of these things I think actually do matter. And I'm thinking about John Bolton's involvement in a prior administration in the withdrawal from the anti-ballistic missile treaty. So most of these things like UNESCO, they really are just soft power organizations. But he's also taken aim at um, arms control agreements, the JCPOA, back in the 2000s, the ABM treaty, and that has had actual consequences now. The Russians are developing missiles um, that would definitely be in violation of the treaty, but the US withdrawal means we don't really have a mechanism to actually follow up here. So I think there's even some concrete uh, yeah, impact. Absolutely. I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I, absolutely. I, I think, you know, weak strings are better than none at holding ourselves down. And, and you know, the ABM treaty worked for a long time when both sides agreed. And I think, you know, Emma, what you're pointing at is the deeper... Uh, dilemma that we might be here in here is that the Trump administration and, and Bolton is enabling it is is envisioning a different world order where they just say there is no such thing as world order. It's it's all spheres of influence. It's all national you know interest and so on. And so we we just aren't going to do any of these things anymore. And and their bet is that that's better for the U.S. than the alternative. And I, I just don't see that. I mean, there are so many of these bilateral treaties. And, 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 you know, the NPT, look, you want to withdraw from the NPT? Is that the next one? Like, you know, I, that's the same logic to me. That's not working for us. We don't, we can't smash people as hard or whatever. I mean, come on, man. But at the very least, we should be making some sort of like institutional Pascal's wager, right? If, you know, we don't know if they work and they don't exert a huge cost, maybe we should stay in the institutions just to see if it works out in the end. Yeah, they're low cost in any case. They're annoying, but they're cheap. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, well, let's move on to something that is decidedly not cheap, and that is the Trump administration's approach to trade. Um, so this is, of course, where the administration has taken some of its most unilateral steps. Um, the withdrawal early on from the TPP struck many as uh, just shooting ourselves in the foot, and it's been followed up with the renegotiation of NAFTA, which is effectively just renaming it, um, and a whole bunch of new tariffs, um, some of them on Europe, on our allies, some of them on China and other countries uh, that we trade with on a, a massive scale. Um, and Trump isn't really alone on this. He's been backed by some in the Republican Party, but also some on the Democratic side that you might think would be more liberal on this are actually typically opposed and protectionist uh, in their free trade policies. So it seems like we might be moving into a period where trade is the big issue of contestation. Um, is this the new normal then? It's hard to say how you know how much Trump's trade rhetoric will stick post Trump. Uh, there's a there's a tendency to think that things will kind of revert back to the norm. Um, that said, you know, as bad as things seem to have gotten with Trump's uh, insistence on trade wars and that kind of thing, you know, what he's done in terms of signing new deals like this new NAFTA uh, arrangement. Um, 
is more anti-trade in its rhetoric than in its uh, tangible qualities. So there are some liberalizing elements of the new NAFTA deal on Canada's dairy products and so on. And there's some more restrictive elements with um, you know, Canada's ability to trade with non-market economies and restrictions on U.S. auto trade in or in North North America in general, and those are bad. But it's kind of a mixed bag, and that means that the deviation from the kind of free trade norm is comparable to previous administrations' deviations from the free trade norm. So, I, you know, how lasting will it be? It's hard to say. But uh, politics has a way of being chameleon-like after a demagogue departs. Yeah, I think you know, the funny thing with with trade is that the economics are easy, but the politics are complicated. And so, what's what's saddest to me is watching the the leadership of both parties just back away from the easiest, you know, calculation of national interest there is, which is international trade is good. There should be more of it, and instead retreat into various and sundry kind of attacks on free trade, it's not good for workers, it's not good for national security, whatever other baloney, you know, they think their folks will buy. Um, what's interesting though, you know, and this is exactly I think what Steve Bannon wanted. He wanted to turn US politics into a, you know, cosmopolitan elites against nationalist sort of Jacksonian impulse. And he thought he could win that battle, you know, every day and twice on Sundays. And it looks that way now on on one level, but actually the new Chicago Council on Global Affairs surveys out just recently, and it shows the exact opposite. Um, 85, the highest numbers in support of free trade ever recorded by the survey. And it's almost entirely, of course, a Trump backlash. It's not necessarily saying that 85% as they fan, 85% say that international trade is good for consumers like them, 82% say it's good for the United States, and even 67% say it's good for jobs in the US, which is actually, frankly, the one thing it's probably not good for. So, you know, the, the public isn't biting on this, let's do it, you know, cosmopolitan elites versus us. Us, the people has said, actually, you know what, we like free trade. And I think they're saying Donald Trump scares us because he sounds like he doesn't like it. You know, I think there is the one big area, though, where he is taking a different stance on trade. And I think that is very much his approach to China. He he really does seem to be keen to, I mean, effectively break the chains of globalization, right? Destroy the whole supply chain that moves from Asia over to the US. Um, and, and his administration is taking target at a whole bunch of industries on this front. And the answer is, you know, when so when Apple complains that they need to make their phones, that this will make iPhones more costly, the Trump administration's answer is you should just make them in the US, which isn't really an answer. And so I will say that does seem to be the one area where his administration does seem to be taking a really sharp, bright turn on trade. So if you read Bob Woodward's book, you get the sense that it's less the administration taking a hard turn and more Trump and a couple of his advisors, Peter Navarro and, and, and these types of people. Um, because there's a lot of internal resistance to Trump's really uh, mercantilist version of uh, of trade. And in fact, one of the most sort of surprising parts of the Woodward book was a, a moment where he Trump actually wrote down in the margins of a uh, draft speech in capital letters the words, trade is bad. I mean, this is a guy that has a bias against trade. He believes in walled off national economies, sort of an autarkic system. Um, and virtually no one believes that these days. Uh, and so when he leaves, uh, I think we're going to see a, a much more normal approach to trade uh, that we've seen in the past several decades. 
Yeah, I think he's, you know, his <clears throat> Trump is, I think, sui generis here, and more or less, and and also, you know, his his bilateral preference. I mean, he would like to hammer out these deals. And I was just reading somewhere that, you know, maybe the theory is you hammer out a couple of early ones with the Canada Mexico thing here, and that is the lever that you bash other countries sort of one by one till you've remade the whole trading system into a bunch of, you know, like Switzerland has to do deals with everybody independently. Yeah. And, I, you know, I don't think he has enough time left in even if he wins another term to do that, but no one else wants to do it that way. So yeah. I just don't see that lasting. Also, there, are, there is pushback on that. So for example, there are consequences to Trump's trade war on China. Number one, the, the Trump administration had to offer $12 billion in assistance to rural farmers in the United States to compensate for the damage that they uh, felt as a result of China's retaliatory tariffs uh, on us after we tariffed, uh, saying, you know. Uh, There's a bunch of soybeans sitting in barns now doing nothing. And on rotting. North Korea, you know, Trump tweeted a couple months ago uh, an apparent surprise that China was being less cooperative on sanctions now that we've started a trade war with them. Uh, strategists could have predicted that months ago. Yeah, so this actually leads pretty uh, naturally into the final topic. I want to talk about, and that is China. Um, and Trump administration has taken uh, a fairly adversarial approach to China, I'd say. After that initial sort of early summit with Xi Jinping that Trump really loved, they've basically taken a whole bunch of policy steps uh, that are much more confrontational, even calling it out in the national security strategy as a, as a competitor, which we've never really done before. Um, and trade is a big part of that. There was a really bombshell story in Bloomberg just last week um, that talked about the dangers of manufacturing in China and pointed to what actually does seem to be a downside of trade, and that is supply side or supply chain security, um, particularly for computers coming out of China. So, I mean, is Trump right? Are there national security dangers to trade? Is this something we should actually be concerned about? So, uh, yeah, there are, there are vulnerabilities there no matter what. If you're going to have a globalized economy that depends on, uh, you know, how things work in other countries, uh, you are going to open yourself up to vulnerabilities. I will say, for the for the sake of the for the record, that uh, Bloomberg story has been outright denied by Apple, Amazon, Department of Homeland Security, uh, the company Supermicro that it was reporting upon, uh, and I believe uh, the British uh, GCHQ. Um, that's a little unusual to get blanket denials from all the parties concerned, including especially those uh, private corporations, uh, in response to such a straightforward sort of sort of bombshell story. So there's, it's worth looking at uh, skeptically, even though even if some of the claims are, are true, and even if it's false, uh, it's still true that this is a plausible risk that we need to prepare for. Um, there are certainly things I think you can do on the supply side, uh, making sure that the factories that you make use of in China and so forth have better security. Uh, but the bigger risk, I think, rather than hardware chips you know, being placed in circuit boards and so on, is malware and software risks in the cyber realm. Uh, and we have other ways of dealing with that as well. So it's a risk, it's a problem, but compared to the benefits of being able to get cheap labor in China um, you know, for the unemployment, for lower prices, for global trade in general, um, I don't think it's worth... Uh, really pulling back on our trade relationship with China. You know, you're you're right that the companies have denied this specific story, but we do have a fair amount of background information that suggests that this is a problem in general. 
as you said. Um, so we've seen the U.S. government ban uh, agencies from using products made by certain Chinese companies, uh, particularly ZTE that got sanctioned in, I believe, connection with the Iranian sanctions. Um, we've also seen the British government, for example, say, well, Huawei, the Chinese company, they're not allowed to make any products that the government will use. So this may be an issue less of, of consumer electronics and more of what government agencies can use. The, the gray area and the thing I found very interesting about the Bloomberg story was it was private companies that were buying these machines that reputedly had the chips in them, companies like Amazon. Amazon was then constructing a data center apparently for the CIA. And so this is an area where government contracting becomes a big issue. You know, We can tell government agencies not to use these things, but it becomes a lot more difficult for companies to stop using those supply And that chains. blurred line exists on both ends. So there's a big blurred line between private companies and companies that cooperate with China's national security uh, apparatus in China. And the same thing is true here. So uh, yeah, that blurred line does create more problems. Yeah, I think I think you know there, there's certainly risks in in openness. I think that's you know the story of terrorism since 9/11. The story of international trade has has always been like this. I you know Pence in his recent speech uh, argued that China had chosen the path of economic aggression, and I think that the the underlying question for grand strategy here is not are there some dangers from trade, but what do you think's up with China? Because if this is just one of uh, you know a host of well-planned, you know, grand strategic enabling attacks against the U.S., then you view it one way. If this is just sort of like espionage on a you know grand scale or, or whatever it turns out to be, because frankly it's a super sweet hack. If and and but how big was it really? We have no idea. I believe it happened, but I don't know how many servers they actually got this onto. Did they actually know where they were going? I mean, there's a lot of questions about how how good. They knew it was going to be, but, but I think if you believe the Pence view, and I think it's gaining a lot of traction on the right. I mean, you know, Hal Brands wrote a recent piece about, oh, it's time to realize that China is this awful, you know, character. You you might have denied it twenty years ago, but now it's obvious. You know, you have a lot of people on the right saying this is now how you have to see it, and that's clearly the Trump administration's new new thing. And I think. Uh, you know, the other question is, well, look at all the rising powers. How did they behave? I mean, as I understand, it, the U.S. stole tons of industrial secrets from Britain, right? Especially during the Industrial Revolution. That's what hungry young countries do. Like they steal stuff to get ahead because it's a dangerous world, and you know, whatever. Not so, just hungry young countries, bloated old countries bloated like old the United countries. States. Well, we still and, do these kinds of you things. You know, I, and I, I still the hyperventilating in the U.S. about a, a few microchips when when we record the phone calls of every single person <laughs> in the world. I mean, come on, guys. But how only, worried are you really? But not only that, if you're thinking about how to mitigate these vulnerabilities, one way to do it is to start to create norms in international society around not doing these things. And that's hard to do when you're also participating it's, in those <laughs> It's almost like you wish there was a world organization for trade where you, oh, wait, yeah, <laughs> right, where you could talk about those things. And But see, this is self, I think the market corrects itself because Chinese companies are going to take a massive whack because no one will trust them. And China's going to realize, you know what? That's probably not our best move. We got to do other things. So, so that's on the trade side, right? And I think more broadly on the security side, um, the question really boils down to Chinese intentions. And I think this is something we're probably going to have to come back to on the podcast and spend an entire episode talking about, you know, what are China's intentions? Is it just economic growth um, or, or is it something a little more nefarious? And I know I was in a conversation just last week about Iran sanctions that are coming in about a month. And the question is, well, what will China do in the Middle East? If they just care about oil, they'll probably abide by the sanctions. If on the other hand, they want to undermine the 
U.S. internationally, they may actually continue to trade with Iran. And so this question about intentions runs through almost everything that we're talking about at the moment. Yeah, and I, I sort of dread the return of that conversation because having lived through the Cold War, you know, the last however many years of it, I, you know, there's nothing more tiresome than a debate about Soviet intentions because I'll be damned if I ever was convinced by anyone that they had a really good handle on that. And even today, after all the archives that have been, I still can't tell because you can, you unearth so much conflicting information that it's not clear at any given time what the hell those intentions were. And are they stable? Of course not, right? And that's one of the whole arguments that realists will make about rising powers is their intentions don't stay static. As they grow in power, they have new intentions. So today is China, 20 years from now is China. I mean, do you have any promises? But you have to make policies if you know what 20 years from now China is going to do. So, you know, this is just going to be frustrating. Well, uh, let's move from one frustrating question onto another. Um, and I want to end with the, the really provocative question. So Politico had an article just last week arguing that Donald Trump's provocative foreign policy, as they termed it, is, is actually working, that it's producing dividends, that it's really paying off, that this maximum pressure that he's bringing to bear in almost every situation is actually yielding results. So same question, is it working? Yes and no. So, for example, it's it. I talked about North Korea earlier. Uh, if Trump wasn't uh, so willing in the first place to meet face to face with Kim, which previous presidents had been reluctant to do, um, we may not have made the progress that we made. Then again, if he hadn't been threatening nuclear holocaust across social media, we wouldn't have got up to the brink that he then walked us back from. Um, but. So in some cases, it's it's true that Trump's kind of uh, wild, erratic, uh, no first premises type of uh, diplomacy uh, can sort of end up someplace more desirable. But the article that you cite and this this argument in general, I think, suffers from this bias of putting too much intentionality and design into one agent. So the world is complicated. There's lots of things going on. And if all you think about is Trump, then some of the things going well you think is Trump's fault. So for example, again on North Korea, none of this would have happened if not for the gargantuan efforts of South Korea's President Moon Jae-in. But if you, if that's sort of not in your field of vision, you think Trump has accomplished something here. Uh, same thing with the economy. Presidents always like to overstate their influence on the economy. And President Trump is, is no different. He's been claiming that his leadership in his first almost two years as president has created this amazing booming economy with uh, historically low unemployment rates. Well, no, that's a trend from the Obama era that uh, is continuing and that's good. Maybe some of the things he's done has, have been helpful you know, reducing regulation at the executive level and this kind of thing. But uh, no, the economy is not Trump's fault and uh, the success on the Korean peninsula is not Trump's fault and uh, the world is complicated. I do look forward to seeing how he handles it when we hit our inevitable next recession because there's always a next recession in a cyclical economy, whether he continues to claim credit for it. No, that's the Democrats' fault. Yeah, of course. The obstructionist Democrats' fault because uh, – no, I, I mean I really would like someone to point out to me one place where what he's doing is working. I mean much less several or the majority of things that I don't see any of that. Are things better with Russia? No. Are things better with China? No. Are allies in general? No. Trade? Absolutely not. Um, we, we almost invaded Venezuela. We've you know intervened more in Syria. We've you know continued the war in Afghanistan, all the different war on terror elements still in place, still firing on all cylinders. Uh, 
we have, you know, a, a continued effort at, you know, counterproductive and polarizing border wall. We have an immigration ban. We have everything is a disaster as far as I can tell and, and getting worse. And I think one of the things that we'll probably talk about on future episodes is I, I think the other problem with the maximum pressure in all directions at once thing is that it, it fails to appreciate how interconnected these things are. So you, you, you want help on North Korea with China, but then you do a trade war or you want their help on Iran, but you're doing a trade war. Guess what, buddy? These things are linked and you don't get everything you want by pushing in all directions as hard as possible. You got to play the dance and he doesn't dance. He has no clue what he's doing. So maybe this is because that, that those are all good points. So maybe the article and that argument in general is more is more reflective of the fact that you can have a bumbling, unstrategic president doing lots of negative things and things can still go well in the world. Uh, in other words, the negative that a president can do is sometimes equally in insignificant as the positive. You know, this was actually kind of my thought when I read that article is this is the tyranny of low expectations. If you remember back to Trump when he did his first State of the Union speech, or I guess it's not a State of the Union the first year, but basically it was the, the thing was, could he read a speech off a teleprompter without going off script? And he did. And everyone said it was a wonderful speech. That's the tyranny of low expectations. So in international affairs, what we're talking about is, well, he's not really achieved much. He's messed up a bunch of stuff, particularly on trade, but he's also not killed us all yeah, yet. He hasn't blown up the world. Right, right. He threatened a war with North Korea, but then didn't do it. <laughs> Success. He threatened to destroy NAFTA, but then renamed it. Success. Yeah. Like, come on, guys. So we he's really good at fixing all the problems that he himself caused. Yeah. Right? Which is gets easier when you can declare success about fixing a problem when you haven't actually fixed it, which is the case with NAFTA, which is the case with the Iran deal, which is the case with North Korea. So what does that mean for the next two and a bit years? We're just hoping to avoid disaster. Uh, I mean, I think domestically things are going to get much messier and that'll that'll have an impact on foreign policy because if the Democrats, as they are predicted to do, uh, take the House and uh, the Senate, probably not, but at least it's in play, uh, the administration is going to get checked a lot more than they have under the Republicans. And so it'll frustrate their priorities and prerogatives and uh, I think you'll see a much messier second two years of the term. Well, that was a lot of ground to cover, and I don't think we came to any particular conclusions, um, but I'm sure we'll pick up almost all of those threads in the rest of the year or next year on the podcast. Thanks to our producer, Jeff Gell. Thanks to both you, Trevor and John, for helping me to review everything I missed while I was out. Um, we'll be back next time with a special episode featuring Harvard University's Steve Walt talking about his new book. You can also see him talk about that on October 17th here at Cato at noon. He'll be talking about it in a big public event. You can find the details on Kato's website. Um, and finally, we also wanted to give a plug for a new podcast featuring Kato's own Chris Preble. It's called Net Assessment. It's being published by War on the Rocks, and it will feature uh, Chris and a couple of others talking about current affairs from a variety of different political viewpoints and perhaps in a little more confrontational way than we do here at Power Problems. Um, so you can find that online or wherever good podcasts are sold. Thanks to everybody for helping us put together this podcast and thanks to you all for listening at home. You can find us on Twitter at CatoFP if you want to continue the conversation. <laughs>